When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, cultural anthropologist, brand marketer, 20-year innovation storyteller, and founder of Emerging Media, Susan Lindner. Hey, what you drinking? Since I've got the, this global expert uh, in front of me right now, I'm going to ask you some some really questions about your craft because these are things that I have always wanted to know. I can pick up one of a dozen books. The online, there are hundreds of people trying to teach me how to be a better storyteller for only 19.99 plus whatever. <laughs> and, and a virtual course. And it's a virtual course, right? That's okay. I haven't gotten the sense that those courses, that those books are coming at it from the same perspective as you are, as you're outlining to, to me right now. What are the elements of storytelling that ensures that we are still focused on being helpful and actually caring about the people that we are there to serve, whether you're in sales, whether you're an innovator, whether you're just a person, you know, what are the elements because very often I believe that we let the strategy get in the way of the objective. Our, our objective becomes, how do I tell this compelling, convincing story as opposed to how do I really understand what that other person needs and find a way to deliver that to them? So how would you describe the, the important elements of doing what you do so well all over the world? So I go back to the source. I go back to infinite intelligence, where our paths first crossed, that infinite intelligence. And I go back to the prophets. So yeah, I was a religion major as well as an anthropology major in college because I was fascinated by how the prophets were able to move the word around the world. And how did they do that before Twitter and Facebook and everything else with 12 friends who went off to the desert or went off to the forest? and managed to share this universal wisdom with the planet and in stories that we are still telling today. In the case of Moses, right, it's 5,000 years later. We're still telling these stories 5,000 years later. How is this possible? And so my desire was to dissect how the prophets told stories, Jesus, Jesus Buddha, Muhammad, Moses, and understand these kind of archetypal frameworks that prophets used to communicate. And they're really different from the way the rest of us mortals speak. And so by breaking down those strategies, 
those communication strategies, we can use those in boardrooms today and have the same efficacy as the original profits. Because frankly, innovators are profits of innovation, of the change they want to see in the world. And so I went to the greatest viral marketers of all time, the profits, to figure out how they did it. And when I say viral marketers, I mean to say, how do you get other people to tell your story for you even long after you're gone? So I studied them and I broke those parables apart to figure out what that was. So I found there are five essential pieces to this framework of innovation storytelling and prophetic storytelling. Is it helpful to share them? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Can we first say cheers and have a and have a glug? <laughs> yeah, I, I got a feeling that that this is gonna make more sense after I have a drink. So um, maybe on the second one even more. So <laughs> so five essential rules of, of innovation storytelling. Step number one is a history. So the prophets did one thing really well. They they talked about a shared history of where we all come from. So Jesus didn't throw out Judaism. Muhammad didn't throw out the monastic, you know, the monotheistic traditions that came before him. The Buddha didn't throw out Hinduism. He said, we come from the shared history. We understand one another. We have a shared calendar. We have shared rituals. We understand what this universal intelligence wants from us. We come from this same place. Let's talk about that. If I'm talking to a prospect, I want to create that common ground, that symbiosis, that place. You get it. I get it. I know what the challenges are. We come from the same place. So that history is very important. That's step one. Step two is values and purpose. So what are the core values out of that history that we share? Not just the stuff that we did together, not just the moments we shared, the values that we shared. Can we make them apparent? What are they? Um, do we want to be innovative? Do we want to be fast? Do we want to be smart? Are we quality focused? What is that thing in our world, the values that we take from our history? And we hold on to those. And the other side of those values is the purpose. What do we do with those values? So what's our purpose in the world? Now, once we understand those three, our history, our purpose and values, those three form the baseline. Our next is now the message. If we're going to be great storytellers, we have to figure out the message that not only holds on to some of those core values and the purpose, but also creates a shift that also says the status quo is not good enough. And we are going to burn boats now. We're going to move into a brave new future that is terrifying and important. And that message for most of us is the hardest thing to create. It is going from an eye for an eye to turn the other cheek. That's the shift we're talking about. It is monumental. It is often 180 and it is hard and it evokes terror and fear and stress in people who hear it because change is always hard. Let me jump in there because seeing it from the leader's perspective, mm. you know, someone who sat at your feet and have, they've gotten all the steps, they understand, they're committed. I would suspect that once you get to this part, this is probably when they pee in their pants just a little bit. <laughs> Right. Just just a little bit. It's like, I'm, I'm with you all the way up until this part, because there's a chance that I might get shot at. Mm, there's a chance you might fail hard. So help me with that. How, how do you how do you keep me on the rails <laughs> after telling me, OK, you're going to have to you're going to have to suggest that your people 
take this big shift away from what they've always known mm-hmm. that you've embraced, you've admired, you've honored, but now you're going to suggest that they take a shift and that this shift is not going to be easy and it's going to be scary. You might pee in your pants a little bit. How do you keep me as the leader on the rails? So I have the luxury of working with innovation leaders who I see as a bit of profits in their respective businesses because they are already they are already at the point of a vision that is three to five years out. They have the conviction and the ability and the passion to see what the rest of us can't yet. And so oftentimes they are waiting to unleash this. Um, this is the difference between a top executive and a middle manager, let's say, you know, who has to take the orders rather than lead the charge. So I'm often working at that highest echelon. And so then we figure out how to communicate it to you know, mid-level managers and, and other people who will be executing on that. So oftentimes, my guys are the prophets internally, but they recognize that delivering the message for them, actually speaking it, because it's one thing to find the innovation in the bench. It's another thing to now have to share it and yeah. to use language that the rest of the company will embrace as opposed to run away screaming from. So crafting the message is the hard part. And turning them into great storytellers is about figuring out that message. Because an innovation message not only has to be powerful and convincing and convicting, meaning I have to believe it, um, but it also requires momentum. It needs movement in order to move people into a new way of thinking and acting. And that requires two things. Number one, it requires viral language. So what is the language that I can use that gets people to internalize it like a parable, see myself in it, and then make it shareable? So I use rhetoric. I use alliteration. All the things that we learned in English class about what makes speech powerful. Pick up a speech by Frederick Douglass if you want to get inspired. But it's language that moves people from the inside out. Um, so that's number one. And number two is early adopters. So the other 12 apostles who are going to take the message forward. Who's going to form the basis of the Sangha in Buddhist terms that will form the community that will spread the word? No innovation really comes about on its own. It's always teams constantly iterating, thinking of the next thing. This guy inspires this one, inspires this one, some guy across the world, right? It's why you had seven different virus tests going on. Maybe it was more than that. 12 different virus tests going on simultaneously to find you know, the right injection that all of us are using now, the right vaccine. So it doesn't even just exist within the four walls of a company. Great thinking is going on all around us. Who will pick up the charge and start spreading the word, spreading the gospel of the innovation? Sometimes the biggest skeptics are the best early adopters. Like that guy, you know, it's like Mikey doesn't like it. He hates everything. (laughs) But if Mikey's like, let's try this innovation. Cool. History, values and purpose, the message, viral language, and the early adopters who spread that for you. That's what we need. Those are the five steps. That's what the prophets did. And that's what we try to do at the boardroom. Fantastic. You, you, you reminded me of, of a book that has been out for a while. I can't believe this book is 20 years old already. But there's a book that was written 20 years ago by Robert Quinn called Change the World. And he talked about 
change principles, business change principles, innovation change principles, but pulling from the life, the lives of Martin Luther King Jr., Mahatma Gandhi, and Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. His contention was these three men literally changed the world. And he was trying to break down what were the elements that they leveraged in order to do that. Your point, you think of Jesus, for instance, and you think, wow, he, he, he has convicted millions and millions of people over several millennia. In actuality, he really only converted 12. And then he empowered those 12 so much that they were willing to die gruesome deaths in order to forward and continue what he believed to be true. And they did that for one reason and one reason only. They did that for the hope that they may someday see him again. Can you imagine leaders and innovators carrying that kind of of attraction that people are willing to die to continue what they believe in the hope that they might somehow see that innovator again. I don't see any other way to get there other than using the tools that Jesus, Mahatma Gandhi, and Martin Luther King Jr. used, and that is the power of storytelling, which you're 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 explaining to us here. That that's just really, really powerful to me. And the prophets before them. You have all the Old Testament prophets, certainly, who those who are most successful use the same framework and and the Buddha before Jesus. You're the first. Uh, I'm going to tell you why you're how you are the first here. Uh, I have had guests. I've had a number of really, really brilliant guests on this podcast before. So you're you're not the first there. I have had people who were here that didn't enjoy the juice of the gods as I do. That's <laughs> called brown liquor. So that's that's not new. That's not new. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever had anyone who was intelligent, didn't enjoy whiskey, and didn't enjoy jazz either. Come on. I know. I know. I know. It's just, and it's painful for me. It is painful. But it's like people either love cilantro or hate it. You know what I mean? Like there are those people just kind of split down the line, like it ruins everything or it makes everything better. I feel that way about jazz. It's, I know I'm going to be like blacklisted by all your listeners. Awful. It's awful. And my dad was a huge jazz fan. And I was oh like, my oh. gosh. So <laughs> you're saying that this is a failure in home training is what you're saying. You know what? My dad did everything that was possible. And our father-daughter dance at my wedding was Sentimental Journey. It was more big band, but it was right on the edge there. And I was like, all right, I'm going to allow it because I love you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let me share. Let me share a little bit about because I, I love jazz, uh, literally. And I, you know, I've just had a, a couple of conversations I've had already are uh, with certified jazz legends. Uh, I've uh, had on this conversation, had on this podcast. Definitely double back and, and check out the conversation I had with Aaron Dickey because he brought in Craig Holiday Haynes, which is literally a jazz legend. Uh, I've had some other conversations with jazz professors and uh, I've got some other conversations coming. So I love jazz literally. And then I also love jazz as a metaphor. And this is what I would love to get your perspective on. Here, here's the metaphor. metaphor. What? In jazz, there really is no script. 
There are some ideas, there are some concepts, there's a framework of what is supposed to happen. One of the one of the most iconic jazz albums of all time is Miles Davis' Kind of Blue. And though I understand that the way that he wrote Kind of Blue is he had some ideas that he wrote on the back of, of a couple of napkins and he handed them to the players right before he was getting ready to turn the microphone on. He said, this is what I'm planning to do. Let's make it happen. So for me, the metaphor is I've got these ideas of what is supposed to happen in my life. I've got these ideas, these concepts, but nothing's really written down. I've got to use my education. I've got to use my daring. I've got to use my courage. I've got to use all these things to somehow make this stuff work mm. in a way that makes sense. And so for me, that's really kind of a metaphor for life in that we've got some milestones that we understand that we're supposed to hit, but how we hit them, if we hit them, who's going to be there when we hit them, that's really not scripted out. We, we just got to kind of feel this thing as we go. So that's the part of jazz that I love as a metaphor. How does that sit with you? I know that I can't get you to like uh, get into some Horace Silver, probably not even some John Coltrane, but the metaphor. I have to come through an, an occasional boyfriend here there in my youth who felt a similar feeling as you do about jazz. But here's what it sounds like to my ear. It sounds like three or four people playing three or four different songs simultaneously. I don't see the conjunction. And so I'm dying to figure out how it all comes together. My very small brain doesn't perceive where the connection takes place. For me, it's cacophony and I can't figure it out. I have faked it, I'll admit it, when a few women will admit it, but I have. I have faked liking jazz. I said it. <laughs> okay, well then I'm going to encourage you, like I'm going to encourage everyone okay. to be on the lookout for this conversation I'm going to have with Ed Beckton. Ed Beckton is a former professor in the history of American jazz. And uh, I'm going to tell you my story about how we met, but this guy, uh, he has uh, led podcasts himself. He has uh, been on the radio uh, discussing jazz music, and, and I'm going to lean on him to help me articulate the magic that is jazz music. You know, but I'll tell you, you know, so Susan, though, you, you, you have redeemed yourself in some of your other music options, like Again, surprise me. I just didn't expect to see that you're a fan of Wu-Tang, Queen Latifah, Public Enemy. I just, I did not see Public Enemy coming. It is the revolutionary in me that has not <laughs> died. And overthrowing power structures is a joy. If you decide to see Jesus the Christ as a revolutionary overturning the tables of the money changers outside of the church, you know that systemic problems of economic systems existed a really long time ago. <laughs> and so when I see great revolutionaries in music and talk about political struggle, part of what I love about hip hop is, is the struggle of the streets and the discussion of that in the frankest, rawest, and most honest way possible. And so that has always attracted me. And I don't know if we shared this, but I was a hip hop DJ back in 1989. Wow. But I was in college and 
my little school that only had 20 African-American students, I think, out of 2,500 students, gave me the 8 a.m. Saturday morning time slot for my hip-hop show, Galen. <laughs> Guess how many listeners there are on a college campus at 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning? <laughs> yes, yeah, so there I am with my bowl of Captain Crunch spinning records at 8 a.m. And the only calls I got to my radio show were from the Cumberland County Correctional Facility just down the road. And they were like, you know, I would get these calls from Leroy who would say, you know what, I'd like to make a request. Please, Leroy, what would you like to hear? Can I have your personal phone number? Would be the response. <laughs> Ooh. No, you may not, but I'm going to play a little cool mode D and you're going to get a lesson in how to stay in school and not go to prison, Leroy. I'm sorry it's coming a little bit late. <laughs> Knowledge hey. is king, said cool mode D. Hey, so one of the things I really, I really would love to hear you talk about because you, you and I connected, and you mentioned this earlier. You and I connected over this book, "Think and Grow Rich" by Napoleon Hill, and I, I'm going to admit that the first time I read the book, I was doing it out of compliance because it was just one of those books that you're supposed to read if, if you're gonna consider yourself to be educated and dare anyone to ask you a question and you not be able to at least reference something indicating that you read it. And so that was about, I don't know, 30 years ago. And when you and I met, they were starting this intensive study, this masterclass study of the book. And I did it just as a way to get to know people. And the lady who was leading it seemed pretty persuasive. And um, she's actually uh, going to be in an upcoming conversation as well. I still get comments from people suggesting, ah, think or rich, that's all about making money. Life's more important than just making money. Why do you do this stuff every week? Galen, will you give it up? I'm good. What would you say? to those people that suggest the book is not worth reading because it's just about making money. Well, that's a complete misrepresentation of the book itself. And I say that as a 30-year practicing Buddhist who, you know, begins with the idea that <laughs> that the accumulation of things in general and the attachment to things in general is not a good spiritual practice. So Overcoming that initial understanding of the book was it, but how many of us go to work nine to five every day? How many of us spend the bulk of our lives in pursuit of a paycheck and then only come home to say, money's not important, and yet it is the thing that sustains us? And how many of us would like to have the luxury of not just sustaining us and sustenance, but would like to have so much money and energy that we could give it? to the places that we care most about, that could wind up taking that energy that is money, right? Because that's all it is, like love or, you know, money is an energy. What if we could channel it back into the world to make things better, to make things right? Would we not eliminate 50% of the arguments we have with our spouse? Would we not eliminate 50% of the strife and the pain and the agony that we see on the streets when we know what abject poverty looks like? when we know what homelessness looks like, would we not want to generate more money and allow people the tools to understand how to take care of themselves in a way 
that would make them not only take care of themselves, but also make them feel confident and desired and worthy and valuable and contributing? Would we not want those things for the least among us, like you said? Would we not want those things? So stop thinking about money as that which is dirty and undesirable, but rather as a tool to make the world a better place, not by harming people. Because I can tell you what it's like to work in a brothel at two o'clock in the morning and to know what it looks like not to have the money to make the decisions that you want about your own life and to decide your own destiny. Money is a tool that decides your own destiny for you. Mm. That's all we want. Freedom. That is absolutely beautiful. Slightly different than the way that I've heard Dave Chappelle explain it. My hero. Dave Chappelle said, I've been rich and I've been broke. Being rich is better. (laughs) I was at his special, right? For George Floyd. Yes, yes. Very powerful. Well, this this has been a, a great conversation. You have not disappointed. <laughs> well, well, you've disappointed a little bit. I'm disappointed the, on the jazz urban. front so hard. <laughs> Wait, let me ask you this, Galen. Okay, if there is one song, because I listed the one jazz song that I can tolerate, tell me the jazz song that I should hear that will make me a, a prophet, that will make me a convert. You a be convert. the prophet of jazz and convert me, Galen Benton, into a, a jazz fan. It's hard for me to choose just one song. And it's hard for me to be objective, although I will try. The number one selling jazz album of all time and considered to be iconic by much, much smarter people than I on this topic happens to be an album written by and performed by Miles Davis, which is one of my heroes. And that album is called Kind of Blue. And so literally, you can put that album on, whether it's a record album, whether it's a CD, and just put it on and let it play from start to finish, go about your day. And by the time that album is over, you will notice that you have changed the way you see the world and that you feel differently about whatever it is that you have to face. And what's so interesting about that particular album is that he arranged some of the most Uh, iconic, legendary musicians to play on that album for him. And he did it in five different sessions. So they came back together five times. They recorded all of them. They improved them. They took out parts that they didn't want. They spliced together the parts that they did want. So they literally manufactured an iconic album over five weeks. Between weeks three and four, they took a break. They took a three-week break. And while they were on this break, their saxophonist was a guy by the name of John Coltrane. And he went off, he erected his own band members, and he recorded the second most iconic jazz album of all time called Giant Steps. So two of the most iconic jazz albums of all times were all recorded within the same five-week period with the same person playing saxophone. And so that's where I would tell you to start. Are you telling me that you're going to throw me into the deep end of the pool, into the baptismal font right there, and I'm going to have the transformational moment right then? I'm going to, I'm going to see God with this transformational music as opposed to stepping my way in slowly into... That is the beginning point because so wow. interesting that you would say, but so interesting that you would say, see God, because John Coltrane 
towards the end of his career, he started getting into some very, very abstract jazz, like really over the top jazz. He says that at that point, he was playing for God and that God understood. And we were all just listening. So there is a spiritual journey there that I enjoy every time I listen. Boy, I tell you, you're, you're the only guest that has gotten me really kind of emotional about jazz. And for that to come from a non-jazz believer, that's quite impressive. This is what happens when you tell stories, right? This is what happens when you share what is your passion with the listener. Because I'm seated at the foot of the master here, Galen, and I am listening and I am wrapped. And I'm eager to take the word forward. I want to go and listen now. This is what great storytelling does. Well, fantastic. Well, this has been a great conversation. One of the things I've promised to my listeners, and we had a lot of great conversations throughout season one, uh, is that each of my guests would leave them with almost a parting bit of advice, something that we hope that they will take from this conversation. So if you were if you were to think of two to three things, maybe one or two things that if they couldn't get everything that we talked about, if they could just walk away with these things, what do you think those things might be? I think about a quote from Steve Jobs and it is a guiding leadership principle for me. Steve Jobs was in his break room with his team and he asked the team, who is the most powerful person in the world? Who's the most powerful person here at Apple? And his team responded, well, it's the tech team who built this thing. Well, clearly it's the supply chain team who gets it around the world. Clearly it's the marketing team who gets other people on board. And Steve Jobs responded by saying, the most powerful person in the world is the storyteller. Because the storyteller sets the vision, the values, and the agenda of an entire generation to come. That's a guiding principle for me, is that story is not just what we do in our spare time. It is the fundamental way that human beings connect with one another on the planet. And we have the opportunity to set the agenda of an entire generation to come. And I believe the greatest prophets of our day, that's exactly what they did. Whether it's Dr. King or Gandhi or Jesus the Christ. They were telling us stories in a way that we could understand and we could take with us and we could transform the world. So I think in your world, Galen, that's probably the jazz musician doesn't even have to utter a word. It's the notes itself that create the transformation. And so I'm eager to listen and, and take a big bite of humble pie and see what I haven't heard before and see if I, I can find a transformation from that music. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to leave us with some words that I was just reintroduced to by one of your favorite groups, and this is Public Enemy. They've had a couple of recent releases that I just wasn't, I wasn't aware of. And I was listening to one rap that they have, and the lyric from Chuck D was, if you don't see God when you look in the mirror, why not? So if you don't see God when you look in the mirror, why not? How is it that we've come so far and we've been so convinced by marketers, by politicians, by whomever, that God is outside of us and that only they can save us? God is inside of us as well. And we should see a, a 
even if it's just a small piece of God every time we look in the mirror. And that's the part of us that we should be championing. That's the part that we should be proud of and and showcasing and trying to get more of. I I just want to thank you for helping me see that little piece of God in the work that we do. Amen. So proud to do it with you, Galen. So with that, cheers. Cheers, Galen. Cheers. Maybe be clinking for many, many years to come. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guest and show exclusives. Cheers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.